You're listening to the sermon cast of First Presbyterian Church Spartanburg. To watch the full video of this worship service and to learn more about the ministries of our church, visit us online at fpcspartanburg.org. We hope you enjoy the message. Our second reading this morning comes from the Psalms, 40th Psalm, verses 1 to 11. Let us continue listening now for a word from God. The psalmist writes, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the desolate pit out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Happy are those, the psalmist continues, who make the Lord their trust, who do not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after false gods. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. Were I to proclaim and tell of them, they would be more than could be counted. Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, O Lord, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. And then I said, here I am in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. I've told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. See, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your saving help within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Do not, O Lord, withhold your mercy from me. Let your steadfast love and your faithfulness keep me safe forever. Friends, this too is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Today's sermon is titled, How Long to Sing This Song? Let us pray. Good and gracious God, we pray that you would send your spirit to dwell amongst us now. Indeed, O God, we pray that through the work of your spirit, you would place a new song in each of our mouths. O God, through your spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts gathered here together in your sight be glorifying and pleasing to you. For you and you alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Last fall, I spent a morning in Richmond, Virginia, walking around an area of that city that was once a teeming slave market. For many years in the 19th century, of course, especially that window of time from about 1830 to 1860, Richmond was the epicenter of the downriver slave trade. 
certainly on the East Coast and for the most part, the entire United States, it was the place where more people were sold and bought than any other. I was there with a a group of pastors Our host, the pastor of First Presbyterian Richmond, had organized for us a walking tour in that part of the city down a trail that has been set up called the Richmond Slave Trail, different historically significant sites that played an important role in that chapter of Richmond's history. We began in this little park right off a sidewalk. If you were walking or driving by, it was almost too easy to walk by and not even know it was there. But we ducked into this park. It's right under a major highway overpass. It's pretty loud underneath. You kind of had to lean in to hear what the guides were saying. But they gathered us around this uh, statue. It was a bronze statue, not of a person, but of a box. Two feet by three feet by about two and a half feet. And they proceeded to tell us the story of Henry Brown. Anyone know this story? Henry Brown was an enslaved person in Richmond who worked in a tobacco factory there in town. He was married, had three children, and for the most part, he and his wife and their children led a remarkably normal life, or as normal as people in forced bondage can possibly live. But when his children were still adolescents, a day came when both the kids and his wife were taken down to the river and sold away. Henry Brown would never see his family again the rest of his life. He was overcome with grief, overwhelmed with anguish. And he devised this plan in his mind that the only way he could possibly escape the misery that he was living in was to escape to freedom. And the plan he came up with involved a box about two feet by three feet by two and a half feet. A plan that had him going into that box and being shipped north. For 26 hours, Henry Brown was transported by carriage and train and boat to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. A grown man stuffed into a box for 26 hours, nothing but three small air holes and like a wineskin essentially of water until he was delivered to the office of a Quaker merchant and abolitionist. Henry would later write about the moment when the top of that box was pried off as being the moment of his resurrection from the grave of slavery. But the most remarkable thing to me as we were learning this story there in that little park was what the guides told us Henry did when he came out of the box. It is said that when Henry came out of the box, he launched into singing, into song. And can you guess what he sang? He sang the 40th Psalm. He sang those words that we just heard read. Henry Brown came out of that box singing, he drew me up from the desolate pit out of the miry bog. God set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. God put a new song in my mouth, 
a song of praise to our Lord. You know, it's fascinating when you study the Hebrew scriptures, you find that one of the defining characteristics for God across all of the Hebrew Bible, but especially in the Psalms, one of the defining characteristics that the authors over and over point to being true about God is God's steadfast faithfulness and love. Right, it shows up twice just in this psalm. It concludes with the psalmist proclaiming, God, let your steadfast love and faithfulness keep me safe forever. Right, we don't do testimony too often in the Presbyterian church. Some of you who have grown up perhaps in a more Baptist or non-denominational background might be more used to people coming up and sharing testimony. But if the psalmist were here today, I think he would want to come up and testify in the way he does in this psalm. Because Psalm 40 is a testimony to God's steadfastness, God's steadfast love and faithfulness. Right? The new song in the psalmist's mouth is actually a very old song. Because what the psalmist is doing is joining his voice to the voices of all those who have come before him. Recognizing the fact that God is one who delivers people from bondage to freedom. Right By the time we get to the psalms, the psalmist knows all those stories of God's deliverance that has come before God's deliverance of Noah, God's deliverance of Abraham and Sarah, God's deliverance of Joseph, right, from down in the pit. The psalmist knows the story of God's saving power through the stories of Moses and Joshua and on and on. But now here in Psalm 40, the psalmist has experienced God's saving power himself. Out of that miry bog, God has lifted the psalmist from his despair and set him on a rock of hope. The psalmist now joins that long chorus that has come before him as one who has experienced God's saving power. And it is through the psalm that the psalmist hopes that by singing that song of God's love and deliverance, others might be led to to trust and to know God's saving power. That after the psalmist is long gone, there might be others with names like Alan and Susan and Brenda and Charlie and Henry who will come along and learn that song themselves and pass it on to those who come next. Some of you know that many years ago, Aaron and I lived in Washington, D.C., and one of my favorite things about living in Washington are the monuments. Whenever the weather was not too cold, not too hot, usually spring, fall, I would ride my bike uh, sometimes into work from where we lived in Alexandria. And I'd take the 14th Street Bridge across the Potomac, and if you go that way and you're heading out towards Georgetown, you can loop around the Thomas Jefferson Memorial and then sometimes I would park there in front of the Lincoln Memorial and eat my breakfast bar or whatever and take in the sights as you look down the mall. You see the reflecting pool and the National Monument and the World War II Memorial and then further down, of course, the Capitol. 
When I would drive home too, one of my favorite things to do was to go uh, across the river into Roslyn, Virginia and go up the hill and you get off. I get turned around all the time. But if I did it successfully, I'd get off and I'd go around the United States Marine Corps Memorial, that incredibly powerful memorial that is a massive statue of the image many of us are familiar with of the soldiers planting the flag on Iwo Jima has one of the best views of the city from there as well. If you ever have been or go back to D.C., go up there at night. It's an incredible view looking back over the entire city from up there where the Marine Corps Memorial is. It wasn't long before we moved, though, that the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial was opened. And just like all the others in D.C., it was an incredibly and is an incredibly powerful memorial. You enter it through a literal mountain of stone. They've cut this pathway through the stone that towers above you. And there in front of you, out of this equally massive slab of granite, is the image of Martin Luther King Jr., And on the base of that statue is a a single quote. It's a quote from King's uh, speech at the March on Washington in 1963. We're all familiar, of course, with the I have a dream part of that speech. But this is a, a quote from right after that section of the speech. King lays out his dream, which is, of course, in reality, God's dream, He lays out that dream and he says, this is the dream that gives me hope. This is the dream that gives me faith. And then he says, with this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. That's the quote right there on the base. Out of the mountain of despair, a stone of hope. King, it seems to me, is someone who had that new song in his own mouth, right? But King knew as well that his song was, in fact, a very old one. He is proclaiming in that speech and in his own life the very same things the psalmist proclaims right here in the 40th Psalm, that even when we find ourselves on mountains of despair, God is the one who gives us the ability to imagine a life and a world that is defined by hope. God is the one who is able to pluck us out and set us on that firm rock of God's saving power, right? But King knew that that wasn't his own song just for him. It was a song that he must share. He understood that by living a life to share that new song, it might lead others to trust and to know God's saving power as well. I'm always mindful on this weekend each year that, yes, we remember the person of Martin Luther King Jr., but equally as important, we remember what his life and his legacy was aiming all of us to, right? It was aiming us to ask that question, are we singing that same song in our own lives, in our own ways that we go about living? Can people tell that that new song has been placed in our own mouths and on our own lips? Let me change gears just for a moment. Was anyone here last month for uh, the Messiah? 
I know you all were. We had two performances right in here, really worship is what it was, right in here back in December as part of Advent, where close to a hundred musicians just filled this chancel to share with us Handel's Messiah. There was a story that was shared with uh, some of the staff and others uh, that week after, and then it came up again this past week in a worship committee meeting. Uh, Lisa Cunningham, I know, is here. Uh, Lisa noticed after the 11 o'clock service that there was a, a student. The sanctuary had emptied out, and there was a student sitting back somewhere in this area uh, alone by herself. She had been part of the performance. She had been up here as a member of the Spartanburg uh, choral group that was joining our choir and other musicians. And, and the Messiah that morning. And she was just sitting back here all by herself. Sanctuary was empty. Lights were going off. And Lisa, of course, was a little concerned. Maybe something was wrong. Maybe she was waiting for a ride. And she went back to check on her. And the young woman told Lisa, no, everything's fine. I just kind of needed a moment to take it all in. Right? It had been so overwhelming the beauty and the power of the worship that morning that she just needed some time to let it sink in. What an incredible image, right? I think that's the kind of life that God desires for us to lead individually, yes, but also as a church, this, this kind of life that sings this song, if you will, that is so overwhelming to others that sometimes they just need to sit off by themselves and let it just kind of seep in. They just need a moment to just take it all in. Last week after worship, someone caught me at the door of morning song and they just kind of had to tell me about what had happened the day before. A, a group of church members, some of you here, I think maybe 20 people or so had gathered on Saturday a week ago uh, to help a family who had been living in a motel right around the corner from our church. A mother and her young children living in a motel for many months, but they had finally succeeded in finding an apartment that they could move into. And about 20 church members had come together that Saturday to move them into this apartment. Beds materialized out of nowhere. And when someone realized they didn't have enough mattresses, mattresses materialized out of nowhere. And then towels and blankets and sheets and all the things we need to make a home a home. And this church member came up to me after worship on Sunday, still kind of glowing in the, the, the experience that he had had that Saturday. It was overwhelming to him. And he almost didn't have words to express sort of the awe that the experience of, of singing a new song, of giving another family, playing a role, a small role, but a role in giving them hope that maybe now there's a little bit stronger foundation under their feet for the life that is still ahead. He just needed someone to sort of sit with him and let it kind of seep down into his bones into his souls. That's the kind of thing I think the psalmist is imagining here. Lives that carry that tune of the new song God has placed in our mouths. A song that when sung faithfully and well, it gives people that hope, that trust in God's saving power 
that God desires for us all. I was struck when we were standing there around that box in Richmond by one thing the guide said. They said, you know, it's important to note that Henry Brown didn't get to Philadelphia all by himself. Someone had to literally nail that lid shut. Someone had to sign the paper when he showed up at that office. Someone had to pry it open. It took other people to come alongside Henry Brown for him to realize fully God's love and justice, right? The guide's point in saying this was basically, listen, the song God gives us to sing, it's not a solo. There's some amazing soloists back here, but that's not what God intends. God intends for the song to be sung in community, to be more of a choral, a a choir opportunity. Friends, imagine churches that sing that song of God's love, that proclaim God's hope and life and redeeming grace in small ways and big. This whole week, I had this thing nagging me in the back of my head. I felt like I had heard this line of a new song, sing a new song somewhere before, not just in the the Bible, though. And finally, I figured it out late last week. Uh, I'm not a huge U2, the Irish rock band fan. I like their stuff. I just don't really listen to it that often. But there is a song by U2 called 40. Many people don't know this, but uh, Bono, the leader of that band, is a, a person of faith. And he wrote this song, 40, based on the 40th Psalm back in the 80s. And if you listen to this song closely, you will find the lyrics are the verses that we have just read. And the refrain is, sing a new song. I'm not going to, I can't carry the tune. But over and over, this is the refrain of this song. And I was digging into it a little bit after I remembered that that's what I had been thinking about. And I learned that uh, Bono, for many years, all the way to today, will often end concerts with that song, with 40. So Bono in a stadium with tens of thousands of people will finish the concert by singing this song. And one by one, the different members of the band will slowly exit the stage until no one is left on stage. But there's this chorus in the song, a line that's not in the psalm, but a line I love that Bono added to the song. And the line is a question, how long to sing this song? And almost always at the end of those concerts, after all the band has exited the stage, this stadium, this chorus of people will keep singing a cappella. How long to sing this song? How long to sing this song? They'll just keep singing that refrain over and over. You know, here's the thing. I don't know how long we have to sing this song. But what I do know is that the answer to that question doesn't really even matter if we never begin in the first place. Friends, the psalmist The psalmist proclaims the good news of a new song. 
that God has given to each of us a new song that we know is fully realized in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, a song of God's saving power. The question is, will we join in in singing it for a world that others might come to know and trust it as well. I pray, I pray that the answer might be on our lips this day and always. Amen.